two, three, four-year-olds. For the rest who are remaining here, if you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for our scripture reading this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. We have a, a short text today, Hebrews chapter 11 through chapter 12, verse 3. One person was paying attention. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, and he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of, the, of heaven in number and in innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All of these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendant, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each one of his sons, each each of the sons of Joseph, And worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph when he was dying. Made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. Gave orders concerning his bones. By faith Moses when he was born. Was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses when he had grown up. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment. With the people of God. Than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ great, uh, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as um, seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. 
By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from uh, weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the magnificent gift that it is. And Father, we thank you for texts like this one today that lay out for us wonderful examples of the faith throughout redemptive history. Examples that we can look to and draw encouragement and challenge from. Father, but mostly we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, who, as our text says today, is the author and perfecter of our faith. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're looking at Jesus, a better faith. Jesus, a better faith. And we need to start with the definition of faith as given here in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith can be defined in a multiple uh, variety of ways. And so the definition of faith, according to this text, it starts with in the first half, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance of things hoped for. The word assurance is a word that can also be translated uh, confidence, a thing we have confidence in. It can can mean something that we trust, that we rely on, that we we lean on. Uh, The imagery that's used in the language of the text is the idea of a foundation. You go into a building that you know has a good foundation. You're not worried about falling over when you go into that building. You're not worried about the walls falling down when you go in that building. Uh, there are times where you go into buildings and it's clear that there's not a good foundation. You know, there's cracks in the floors, cracks in the walls, ceiling kind of wobbles a little bit. You're not as confident to be in that room. Uh, in fact, you want to get in and get out as quickly as you possibly can. But when you go into a space where you know there's a very solid foundation... Most of us have homes that have very solid foundations. I'm suspecting that most of us, when we go home this afternoon, aren't going to walk in the house like this going. Please don't fall today. Like that's not how most of us are going to go into our house. We just walk in. We just assume the house is not going to fall over. 
We assume that it's well built. We assume that the foundation is secure. This is the idea here. This, that's what assurance means here. It's, it's the idea of trust and confidence and a firm foundation. So what do we have assurance toward? What do we have this foundational confidence toward? Things hoped for is what it says. Now that hoped for is a verb. And it means things that we anticipate, things that we expect to happen. So faith is the firm foundational confidence that the things we anticipate to take place will indeed take place. Now, what are those things that we're anticipating? It's the things that we're anticipating in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus is the foundation upon which we build our heavenly and future expectation. Friends, here's the thing at the end of the day. I've not seen Jesus Christ. I've not seen the redemption of the world. I've not seen the reconciliation of all things. I've not seen people in the afterlife. I've not received the privilege that Paul did of a glimpse of the third heaven. I've not seen a heavenly vision like John the Apostle did in his revelation. All of these things are things that are unseen to me. But they are expectations that I have. They're they're things that I anticipate to take place one day. I anticipate the reconciliation of all things. I anticipate the future resurrection. I anticipate dwelling with Christ one day in a world that is no longer broken. But I've not seen any of this. But I can have a certain foundational confidence in the things that I expect to take place. Why? Because it's built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. It's not built on some inner longing that I have. It's not built on some sort of dream that I've concocted. It's not even necessarily built on some evidentiary principles that I can look at and experiment with and and value and weigh and measure and and, and repeat the testing. It's not built on these things. It's built on the testimony of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's assurance of things hoped for. It's firm foundational confidence in that which I anticipate to take place. And the second part, it's a conviction of things not seen. This word conviction means the proving of something, the verification of something, having evidence for something. And it's things unseen. How do you have evidence for things you cannot see? That's really problematic. Several of you are in the, the legal career. Would not fly for you to go before the judge in a case and say, listen, we've got all this evidence. Okay, what's your evidence? A lot of unseen things. We need a conviction here. For all these unseen things. That's not how that works. We all know that's not how that works. And yet the Christian has the proving, the verification, the evidence for that which is not seen. And what is it? It is the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has shown himself, proven himself. It says demonstrated himself to be the son of God with power because of the resurrection from the dead. And the affirmation of himself in his resurrection now gives us the evidentiary conviction of things that we cannot see because of what he did all those years ago. He's done what no one else has done. Showing himself to be 
what no, what no one else is. The God man. <clears throat> and so faith in Christ is the proving of that which I cannot see and know at this moment with absolute certainty. And that's where the Christian lives in a very strange world. I live in the strange world of what the rest of the world would call foolishness. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. The belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the world, is foolishness. Let us be cautious in this. Because I have encountered in my lifetime people who who believe that they can take an apologetic approach of reasonableness and evidence toward the gospel. And friends, the scripture makes it very clear. Yes, there's a lot of evidences of Christ's resurrection. There's a lot of proofs that he actually did come back from the dead. We base our gospel on historical realities. But at the end of the day, our salvation, our gospel, our life in Christ is built upon the reality of faith. We have a hope that's beyond all hoping that Christ Jesus truly is who he said he was and that he really did what he said he would do. And from the world's standard of measure, it's ridiculous. It's completely foolish. Why would you believe something like that? Why would you think some peasant child of a medieval of a Middle Eastern family a couple of thousand years ago in an insignificant town on the backside of a desert was somehow the God man who lived a perfect and flawless life and died on a cross and came back from the dead to give you life. Why would you think that? Why, why, why would an intelligent, reasoning person think something like this? It's foolishness to the world. And we are reviled and ridiculed for adhering at, at our lives to this foolishness. Because we have assurance of things we're hoping for. We have convictions of things we cannot see. And friends, that's the starting point. And I make no apologies for it. I have come to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And that he did what he said he was going to do. And that that is the only real hope for broken humanity. And I don't try to apologize for it. And I don't try to give a lot of explanations to it. There are explanations that can be had. But at the end of the day, there is a faith-based principle behind the reality of the Christian faith. That's why it's called the Christian faith. (laughs) That's why it's called that. And so what the author here does for us is he works out the examples and the importance of faith throughout redemptive history. And so I want to start with the examples. We're going to blitz through these or otherwise we'll be here way past lunchtime. But the examples that are supplied here starts with Abel. Abel had faith to a better sacrifice. He made a sacrifice that was much more pleasing to God. Notice that there's no indicator of a law that was given. There wasn't some sort of reading necessarily that he had. There wasn't an instruction book like Moses gave later of this is the kind of sacrifice and the type and the how and the when and the why. 
We just have from the story that he brought an offering and his brother brought an offering. And Abel's offering was superior to his brother's in every way. And we find out from the writer to the Hebrews, the reason why it was superior is because it was done in faith. That he was trusting God by bringing God a particular kind of offering. And God was pleased with it, not so much with the offering itself, but as the condition of the heart of Abel who brought it in faith. He had faith to a better Sacrifice, a better offering. Enoch had faith to a better resurrection. He who was taken up and did not face physical death. Noah had faith to endure ridicule for the sake of obedience and salvation. Per the story that we find and we read about Noah in Genesis. To that time, the way it's read very popularly is that it had not yet rained yet in that region. And a dew would come up and water the land. And there didn't really seem any reason for boat-faring life. And here Noah goes, starts building a boat in the middle of a rain-free desert. I'm sorry, I'm totally with the crowd that made fun of him. I mean, I just, confession's good for the soul, you know. I live kind of out in a a, a more rural environment, but there is a lake near my place. But if, if the lake weren't there... And we're out in just the middle of some trees, some grass, field. And my neighbor starts building a boat. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. Why are you building a boat? Flood's coming. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, a little worried about it. And he was willing to receive the ridicule for the sake of obedience and for salvation. Abraham had faith toward an unseen inheritance. Can you imagine being called like Abraham was? I want you to leave this place where you are. And I want you to go to a land that you do not know. And that will be your inheritance. And he went. He had faith toward an unseen inheritance. And the scripture says he never saw it in this life. He never experienced it personally for himself. He also had faith toward life from death and his offering of his son, believing that God could raise him from the dead. Sarah had faith toward a child of promise and a greater covenant with God. It does tell us in our text in Genesis that she laughed. But she came to embrace the faithfulness of God. Isaac and Jacob had faith toward a blessed future in the way that they blessed their children. In the way that they allowed God to dictate how the covenant would unfold. Joseph had faith toward the fulfillment of as yet unfulfilled promises. Joseph encouraged the people to take his bones. To not leave him buried in the land of Egypt, but to instead bury him in the land of promise. Because now we're multiple generations removed from Abraham and they have still not yet seen the fulfillment of the promise of where they were supposed to be. Moses' parents had faith toward deliverance from oppression and from tyranny. Oppression and tyranny take on many forms. But we should be cautious in our expression of what we think is tyrannical. Just study Egypt a little bit and we find the depths of tyranny. It was a horrible place to live. 
The Hebrew people were slaves to the Egyptians. Harshly treated. Greatly abused. And eventually they began to fear them. And were concerned with their overwhelming numbers. And put out an edict that the children should be killed. Moses' parents, trusting that God would deliver them from this, kept their son alive for three months without being caught. Those of you who have had or do currently have very small children know the difficulty of concealing a three-month-old child. Moses himself had faith toward the rejection of earthly comfort. He was a prince of Egypt, trained in Pharaoh's house, with the authority to exercise life as a member of Pharaoh's household. And he rejected that and he walked away from that. And he also, in the course of the Passover, had faith in deliverance from the wrath of God. Those who participated in the Exodus had Faith in the unfailing promises of God. God leading the people finally to the land of promise. Coming into the land of promise at the battle of Jericho and the falling of the walls, there was faith in God's ultimate victory. The foreign woman Rahab, living in her life of sin, when confronted with the one true God from the nation of Israel, had faith in a life of righteousness that was possible only through that one true God. And then there's a listing at the end of this of the others. Doesn't give their names, but it talks about what they experienced. Their faith unto suffering and unto death. And notice what it says at the end of this. When we get down to the end of the text. Verse 39, it says, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And I think that that is a great struggle in the Christian life. The importance of faith is often overlooked in the Christian life. We see the examples of it. We understand the definitions of it. We know the central place of the gift of faith as it applies the work of Christ to our lives. But I think that what we miss out is on one of these great important features is that faith does not always supply an immediate fulfillment of the promises that God has made. That's not what faith is. Faith is not sight. It's not immediate. None of these, it says, received the promise at that moment. None of them. Friends, we we've covered couple of thousands of years of redemptive history in this short text. And none of them received the ultimate promises that were made to them. None of them. Because Christ had not yet come. Because he is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God has made. Not the land space, not the temple, not the writings, not the sacrificial system, not the priesthood, not the prophetic work. It is Christ Jesus who is the fulfillment of the ultimate promises of God. And none of these received that. But they were looking and they were longing and hoping for. They were desiring these things to be theirs. They all died without it ever being made sight. Every one of them. 
And so, friends, we need to understand as we embrace the reality of faith in our lives. Faith does not mean a name it and claim it reality like many say in our world today. If you just have enough faith, you can get X right now. That is false faith. That's not how faith works. Faith is waking up the next day. Staring the same challenging circumstance in the face that you faced the day before. Having prayed the day before that God would relieve the burden of whatever that circumstance is. And then you rise to walk to a new day with that circumstance still there in your life. And you declaring, I know that God is still good. And then you go to sleep that night and you wake up the next day and that circumstance still remains and has not been removed. And you are able to declare, but I know that God is still good. And friends, there's nothing in the text of scripture that says you might not live your entire life that way. How many members of the nation of Israel enslaved to the Egyptians, prayed daily for God to set them free. And they lived their entire life from birth until death as slaves of the enemy in Egypt, not receiving entrance into the promised land. How many? How many generations of those people suffered and lived and died at the hands of the Egyptians? Daily begging God, because it says in the in the text. That God one day heard the cries of his people and turned his attention to those who were enslaved in Egypt and sent to them Moses and gave them a way of deliverance. But for how many years did generations of people call out to God and say, God, please relieve us of our suffering. And he did not do it. Was God unfaithful? Was God mean-spirited? Was God rude? Was there no God? Was it an empty cry? Did God hate and despise those people and that's why he left them there? Absolutely not. None of those things are true. Because friends, faith is not about getting the results you want immediately. That's not how it works. It's not what it's about. Faith is having confident assurance Of that which you long for and hope for and cannot see. Knowing that God in Christ is good. That's faith. That's an important part of faith that we often leave off. Because friends, I know that many of you suffer. You have a thorn in your flesh similar that Paul did. You have something that you have to endure daily. Maybe it's a broken family relationship. Maybe it's some abuse from your past. Maybe it's a significant health issue. Maybe it's something that's personal to you or someone that you love and care for deeply. And you just long for it to go away because it's hard. And it's it's taxing. And in those quiet, private moments, those dark, as the old 
theologians used to call it those dark moments of the soul where you're alone and you have those honest Job-like moments with God or those honest imprecatory psalm moments like David had where he screams out, where are you, God? And you're alone in that dark place and no one can see it and no one can hear it but God and you're weeping and you're, and you have groanings as the, as it says in Romans that are too deep for words. And you know that God is good. But you know your circumstances will be bad and they will be bad for a long time. And you're trying to reconcile in your life and in your heart and in your mind. How can you be good, God? And life be so hard. And at the end of it, you know what faith does? Faith that is authored by Jesus Christ. Faith that is perfected by Jesus Christ. Do you know what it does for you in that moment? It lets you cry out like David does when he screams out, Where are you, God, at the beginning of the psalm? And he says, But God, you are good at the end of the psalm. That's what it lets you do. This is what faith does that has been formed in us by Jesus Christ. And friends, I feel that often we neglect That reality of faith. Next importance of faith is that without faith, it is impossible to please God, it says here in our text. Friends, God has a larger, longer reaching plan. A plan that does not always include our immediate comfort and happiness. And the scripture makes it very clear that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, for the greatness and the glory of the resurrection to take place. And the scripture tells us that we too who follow in the pathway of Jesus Christ as his followers, as his disciples, we will experience to some measure the suffering of Jesus Christ. We will. And you know what carries you through? The gift of faith. Trusting that God will do what he said he would do, even if you don't see it. And so what does that lead us to? It leads us to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we see that Jesus is our better faith. The great problem with many modern Christians is that we have placed faith in faith rather than faith in Christ. This text here says we have this great cloud of witnesses. I want to put something to bed. And if you had this said at a funeral once before, I'm sorry that I'm like train wrecking your memories of a funeral that you went to, especially if it was someone close to you who loved you. But friends, do not take this section in 12.1 about this cloud of witnesses as all the Christians forever from history and your grandma and your grandpa and your uncle are like looking over the precipice of heaven, like watching your life every moment or every second of the day, cheering you on. That is not what's going on. Trust me, they're in the presence of Jesus. They're not looking at you. Just want to throw that out there. Besides, it gets a little like creepy and weird, like constant 24-7 surveillance by Big Brother up in the sky. That's just kind of strange. I just want to throw that out there. But they're attentive to Jesus right now. They're worshiping him. The, The thing about the cloud of witnesses is we have this example before us of how faith should look. 
We have a testimony throughout redemptive history of what it should look like in the midst of suffering and circumstances and trials and difficulties to be faithful to the things of God. Like, it's not like we have to face this thing down all by ourselves like nobody's ever done this before. We have ample illustrations and examples that we can go back to and say, this is what it looks like to suffer and still have faith. I'm not the first one to ever have to try and do this. How did Abel do it? How did Enoch do it? How did Elijah do it? Like, there's piles of people they didn't even list that said, we don't have time to list everybody. I have lots of people I can go back to and get a magnificent example of what it means to faithfully look to God in the midst of trials and suffering. That's the cloud of witnesses. And because we have that, what should we do? What should we do? It lists out three things for us. First, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Friends, we place things in our way that just trip us up all the time, that hold us back from vibrant walking with God. And some of it, like we've seen in our study through Hebrews to this point, are good things. It usually goes something like this, and I'm just going to leave it real vague because we can fill in all kinds of examples, but it usually goes something like this. Well, you know, I... I, this thing would be going better for me in my, in my walk with the Lord, but. And then we fill in some version of an excuse. You, you don't know how hard it is to X. You don't know what I have to go through because of Y. Well, if you only knew that what I've been through in Z. It usually starts with some sort of redirection of why my suffering is somehow different from everybody else's suffering. That, that's usually how that goes. Well, yeah, I get it that you struggle, but you don't have any idea the kind of struggle that I've been through. And if you've been through what I've been through, you'd understand why it's so hard to walk with the Lord this way. You know, it's a family thing. It's a genetic thing. It's a, it's a history thing. It's an addiction thing. It's a this thing. It's a that thing. Whatever thing. Plug in there. That suddenly makes the assurance and confidence of the things you hope for and the things you don't see irrelevant. That's an encumbrance. Because, friends, I guarantee you, you can dig through the Old Testament. And you can find stories of people who've been through it way worse than you have. Who came out on the other side. Because they kept their eyes on Jesus. So that's the first thing. Lay aside every encumbrance. Second. <coughs> it says we should lay aside the sin. That so easily entangles us. Friends, there are certain patterns of sin. That every person has a struggle with. It may be different for me than it is for you. But it's not hard, especially if in your community of accountability, for whatever that pattern of sinning is to emerge where you can see whatever that sin is that so easily sets you back. And once it's identified... 
There are real, tangible action steps that most people can take to wage war on that kind of sinning. To have legitimate victory in the Lord. It was a remarkable thing that he did. But I had a friend of mine a bunch of years ago in ministry who was saved out of a background of sexual addiction. It was just something that was in his life well into his early adult years. And then he was radically converted to Jesus Christ. And we would all like to think that coming into Christ just immediately makes all of our temptations and struggles disappear. And I don't ever have any problems with anything like I used to before. No. And so my friend recognizing this is one of those sins for me. This is one of those that that so easily sets me back and trips me up and it entangles me. I have to get Jesus aggressive with this. Cut off the right hand, pluck out the right eye. I've got to do something that's going to keep me from wanting to wander down the pathway of destruction and death that I was saved out of. Because I want to keep going back there because I had a great time while I was there. So what did he do? When the world moved into instant access to everything on a phone. Even though it made things harder for him. He didn't get one of those kinds of phones. He had no access to a computer at all. He would handwrite everything. Emails. Sermon messages, sermon notes. Business notes, meeting notes, and give it to the person that was the secretary to type all of it up for him. Because he knew he couldn't sit down to a computer with the issues that he had and just have free access to, to the Internet. He just couldn't do it. Say, that's extreme. That's crazy. You know what? It'd be legalistic if he told you you had to do that. He didn't do that. He just said, this is what I've got to do. I need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles me. Whatever that means. Whatever that looks like. If I'm going to have a vibrant life of faith that's moving towards being like Jesus, I have to move aside the things that encumber me and I've got to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles me. And sometimes you have to take extreme measures to get out of the mire and the murk and the garbage of the life that we were saved out of. And not make excuses, this is how I'm made, this is what I am. This, no, no, mm-mm. And then the third thing, we have to run the race with endurance that's set before us. Do not grow weary in what? Well-doing. It is a good thing to battle against sin. It is a good thing to lay inside entanglements. It is a good thing to pursue after the qualities that look like Jesus. These are good things. Don't grow weary in well-doing. It's hard work. Trying to put off the old man and put on the new man. We have to run that race with endurance. It's not a sprint, friends. It's a marathon. Some of you know my story, my past background. In my younger days, I was a middle distance sprinter. That's what I did. That's what I was good at. My track coach in the younger days came to me and he said, 
I don't know if I should still these all these years later take it as a compliment or an insult, but he came to me and he said, Nancy, you're a little off, right? Like that was how we started the sentence. You're a little crazy. You got some issues, right? It's like, yeah, I guess. And so he challenged me to be the half miler, the guy that would sprint a half mile. He said, you think you just go all out until you pass out two laps around the track? We need a guy that will do that. And I was like, yeah, I could probably pull that off. So I was a middle distance sprinter. And years later, as I was getting older and I recognized that I needed to maintain health, but sprinting around a track at a certain age is probably not a good idea. That's at least what one of my doctors told me one time. Um, he said he was real kind about it. He said, you know, men of a certain age need to adjust the way they exercise. That's what he said the day that I met with him. And I was deeply offended. Um, I was like, my dad's not here. Anyway. And so I took on for a season distance running. I was never a distance runner meaningfully at all. I didn't like it. You know, I'm just going to trudge at a pace for hours at a time. It's like, no, let's just shoot the gun. Let's sprint. I'm going to try to beat you. The race is over. Let's go get something to eat. You know, like that's, that was my mindset. And so I started training for a half marathon. And the training was going great. It's going fantastic. And so the day of the race showed up. So I'd been training in the Delta in Mississippi where I lived at the time and into the fall and winter. It's kind of like here where, you know, you wake up and it's 32 and you go to bed and it's 81. And it's like, what's going on with that? You know, and so I would train when it was warmer outside and the race was in Memphis. Well, yeah, it was December in Memphis and the first freeze came through and the high that day was going to be 27. Hadn't trained in that, you know. And so the gun goes off, the race starts and everything's just right. great. Great. Moving, moving, moving. Looking down. Pace, 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 pace. Eight miles in. Pace. Nine miles in. Wait, what? I'm five minutes behind my mile pace now. What's going on? And I noticed that my feet are actually doing this. Like, why won't my legs bend and come up off the ground? A a nice elderly lady in her 80s went by me. She said, son, are you okay? I, I tried to speak. Some weird language came. I'm not really sure what it was. And I knew, though, that if I stopped, I would not finish the race. Wouldn't finish the race. It's like I've been doing too much training for too long. I'm finishing this race. And I kid you not, for the last five miles of that race, this was my form. And all kinds of lovely old ladies kept making sure that I was okay as they went by me. They were so nice. It was very pleasant. Not good for the ego. I learned a lot that day. But they were very kind and compassionate. So my wife knew kind of what time I should finish the race. And that time was not there. <laughs> she's watching for me. And she's like, should have been here by now. And she started, she told me afterwards, I started to get a little worried. Because it way after when you told me you were going to be here. You know, and of course, I'm struggling. Like, I'm, you know, coming across the finish line like this. And, and, and she's like, are you okay? And I said something in some unintelligible, you know, deal. And they got me something to drink. And I was fine after that. But. At the end of it, I came to realize in that moment when, when my whole body was seizing up and I was running that race, this verse actually came to mind. It says you run the race with endurance. You don't run it to win. That's not why I was training for that race. I wasn't trying to like win the half marathon in my age group. I knew that wasn't going to happen. I had run this race just to gain endurance, to take care of myself, to be healthier, to try to challenge myself, to do something I've not done before. It was about finishing. And friends, that's the beautiful thing that Jesus calls us to. He doesn't call you to win. Jesus already won. He just calls you to run. 
And if that run becomes a walk and a walk becomes a crawl and that crawl becomes somebody's having to help drag you, the fact of the matter is, is you're just pushing toward the finish line. He doesn't care how quickly you get there. It's endurance. You just don't stop. Because when you stop, you become a target for the enemy. And so we're to run a race with endurance. That's what we're supposed to do. And how do we do that? How do we run a race with endurance? We fix, it says here, our eyes on Jesus. Friends, Christians, we got to stop fixing our eyes on everything else. We got to stop. There are a lot of really important things in life that we should pay attention to. Politics, healthcare, immigration, education. We could run a huge list of things that are massively important that we should pay attention to. We should have some opinions on and we should be intelligent about. But friends, none of those things are going to deliver you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Look at what it says. Because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author. He's the one who begins it and crafts it. He's the one who writes it up. Friends, your story in the faith does not start with, I believed in Jesus. Nope. That's in there. That's not how it starts. He's the author of your faith. He's the one that gave it to you. He's the one that gave life to it. He's the one that wrote it down. He's the one that crafted it up. He's the one that started the story for you. But you know what else he is? He's also the perfecter of your faith. He's the one that brings it to its conclusion. And Jesus is the beginning and the end of every true saved person's faith experience. And he never fails. He never fails. Say, Philip, I can't run this race of endurance. Sure you can. Because the faith to do so has been given to you by Jesus Christ himself. And he never fails. And then it gives us the example of how Jesus did this. It says Jesus had this endurance for us. Notice what it says he endured. First, he endured the cross. There's a lot going on in that, the endurance of the cross, the actual physical pain of the death, the spiritual reality of the death, the, 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 the interaction between the father and the son in that moment, the reception of the wrath of his people. There's a lot of things going on there, the drinking of the cup of sin of, of, of humanity. It says he also endured the shame of the cross. The shame, the cross was a very belittling and horrible way to die. But the greatest shame of the cross, beyond just the public spectacle that it made of the individual, is that a human government that God himself had allowed to exist in the world, God gave power to Rome. Rome never got power on its own. Friends, Don't be deceived. Anyone who has power has power because God has given them power. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. It's like a river. He moves it wherever he wants it to go. It's what it says in the scripture. And so Rome had the kind of power Rome had because God gave Rome that power. And a a government that had its power from God, even if they believed that or not, doesn't matter. Created in the image of God, those individuals that were in power... Declared the king of glory a treasonous traitor. Now that's shameful. 
You're the king of heaven and earth. And an earthly king that you basically gave power to is saying that you are not worthy of being a king. He endured the shame of the cross. And after he did that, it says that he sat down. We've been through the sat down. We're not going to go through it again today. All the times in Hebrews where it talks about him having sat down. He sat down. That means he finished his work. And it says here to us that we need to consider Jesus when we face our own struggles so that we don't grow weary and lose heart. When we're facing that thing, we fall asleep at night, we're weeping, we wake up the next day and it's still there. I need to consider Jesus. I need to consider Jesus. Say, Philip, that's cliche. I don't care if it's cliche. It's true. We need to consider Jesus. So our question for the day, the difficult question that we've been asking and facing. Am I trusting in my own faith effort? Well, I'm just going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and I'm just going to put in the extra work and I'm going to have faith in faith and I'm going to cultivate that seed gift and it's going to grow and it's going to expand. Am I having a, a, a trust in my own faith effort? Or... Am I trusting in the gift of faith that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ? It's a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world in our walk with the Lord. Do I look at my efforts? Do I look at my struggles? Do I look at what I perceive to be my strengths and my victories? Do I excuse away the problems that I have and the struggles that I face and the shortcomings that I endure? Do I overdo the victories that I think that I have all for the self of elevating my own faith effort? Or am I daily just humbly leaning and relying on Jesus? You're the author and the perfecter of my faith. And I'm facing a day today that would make me not want to be faithful. I'm facing a circumstance today that would make me want to call into account your goodness. I'm facing a circumstance in my life today that makes me want to throw up my hands and scream at the ceiling. And I just don't know what it is that I need to do with my life right now. But I'm not going to trust my perspective, my attitude, my emotion, my worldview, what I'm dealing with, my feelings. None of these things. I am going to trust You, Jesus, because you are the author and perfecter of my faith and you will never fail in your promises. And you said that even if I can't run, you will carry me through. I'm trusting you today. Friends, it's a it's a subtle thing. But it makes all the difference. We can't have faith in faith. We can't have faith in experience. We have to have faith in Jesus. He is a better faith. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, thank you that we can look to him that he will supply all of our needs, not our wants, not our desires, not our longings, not our preferences, but our needs. He has already run and won the race for us. He just calls us to endure in the path of victory that he has laid out for us. 
Father, let us remember that the trying circumstances that we face in this broken world and in these broken bodies and in these broken lives are nothing compared to the glory of the hope of the unseen things to come. Let us fix our eyes on your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to share together in the Lord's table. I will give our folks who are with us online a chance to prepare at home. And those of you who maybe need to step to the front or the back to be prepared for the service this morning, we will do that in just a moment. This morning, we have the opportunity of sharing in the Lord's table together. First is the representation of his body. Uh, Jesus Christ made the declaration that, um, um, that this was his body and that this is being done for us. Uh, many metaphors that Christ used about being bred from heaven, needing to eat of his flesh, uh, needing to participate in the life of his body. Um, even the metaphors that we find later in the scripture of him being the head, we're the body that's connected with it. He's the husband, we're the bride. He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. There's this interconnectivity that happens. And so he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sins in his own body and he made a sacrifice for us. And so scripture calls for us to do this in remembrance of Christ, to take and eat all of it. Father God, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to participate together. Father, in the celebration of the work that Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you that Christ Jesus has taken our sins in his own body. That he was broken, that he was wounded, that he was bruised for our transgression that he was placed in a tomb, that he had died. He rose again physically, not just for a spiritual hope of a future, but, Father, for the physical hope as well, that we too one day would be made new like him because of what he has done for us. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus also shedding his blood. As Hebrews has taught us as we've studied together, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And Christ Jesus said,